What did a New Testament church look like in terms of the believers who were members of it? How many members did the churches have? Where did they meet? When we read of a church in a particular city, were they a single congregation or were they several? What kinds of people could be found in a local church? What kind of networks existed between the various churches? What well, we don't get loads of really detailed answers to those kinds of questions, but we do get plenty of clues. Of all the churches that are identified for us in the New Testament, the church in Rome and this letter that Paul wrote to them, it helps to provide some significant clues concerning those kinds of questions. It's not overflowing with fine detail, but there are certain features that are contained in these closing greetings which provide us with some real insight as to how things were. So let's take a look and see if we can discover that there is here more than just a list of names. God has seen fit to prompt Paul by his spirit to put all of these names here for us. And for Paul to say about these people what he says. It's here for a purpose. Well, let's see if we can at least extract some help from it this evening. And to do that, I want to uh, pick out three themes that come from these verses. The first is this. Diverse, yet bound together in love. There are 26 names included here. We don't include Phoebe, because of course she wasn't a member of the church in Rome. But those who are there in that church, there's 26 of them. And in, in addition to the 26 who are named, others are alluded to. There's the church in the house of Aquila and Priscilla, verse 5. The households of Aristobulus and Narcissus, verses 10 and 11. The brethren who are with them, verse 14. All the saints who are with them, verse 15. Are they individual congregations in people's homes which make up the church in Rome? Perhaps so. Of the 26, nine are women. Sometimes named with the person we assume to be their husband. Well, we know that's definitely the case with Aquila and Priscilla. Demonstrating that Paul acknowledges the vital role of women and Christian homes in the life of a local church. You'll notice there's no mention of elders or pastors or deacons. Now we can see very clearly, of course, in other parts of the New Testament that such church officers are necessary. And some of the men who are named here may well have held such an office. But Paul demonstrates here what he teaches elsewhere, which is that a local church is a body of believers in which there is no hierarchy as the world understands it. 
there are those who take certain responsibility in, for certain things. But the way the world thinks of layers of hierarchy, they don't exist in the church. Every church requires every member to serve and exercise the gifts and the graces that God's given them. And Paul sees no need to mention anywhere the specific role or function that these individuals have in the church. We're not actually told what each of them did individually. Who were the pastors, elders, preachers, evangelists, deacons? Well, we can maybe hazard a few guesses with some of them, but overall we don't know. We don't need to know. And I'll come back to this particular issue uh, later. Here's the thing. Paul loves and appreciates every single one of them just the same. Now, you look down those names. They don't mean too much to us nowadays, do they? Most of them are mentioned only here. And what you see recorded of them on the page is all that we know about them. Of all the names from the Bible that Christian parents might consider for their children, I don't think many of the names on this list get much of a look in. A few of the ladies' names continue today. Uh, you'll find the occasional Rufus, perhaps, but that's about it. The thing that isn't immediately obvious to a congregation sat in a church in Liverpool 2,000 years later is that these names do actually indicate a great deal of diversity, both in terms of ethnic background and in their social standing. And here they all are in one church. There are Gentile names and there are Jewish names. There are names listed here that were very common amongst slaves. There are names which were usually found amongst those who were of a higher position in society, some of them quite high. Some of the names that are here we know existed in some of the prominent families in Rome at the time. And we can't be certain that these in the, in the list are those in those Roman families, but they may well have been. Maybe some of them really did come from quite significant Roman households. We know, don't we, that uh, Paul had opportunity on occasion to, to have a huge influence. And that influence when he was in Rome would go right into the household of Caesar. So who's to say that at this stage in the life of the Roman church that there aren't Christians in, in really high places Those who are listed as members of households, well, they could be family members. They actually could be slaves in those households. It is thought possible that Aristobulus and Narcissus in verses 10 and 11, they themselves may not have been believers, but actually they were the masters of the households in which believers were found, and that the slaves who worked in their household were the believers that Paul is referring to. 
Now, it's difficult to verify some of these thoughts, but it's very possible. And it tends to demonstrate just how diverse this church really is in Rome. And they're all muddled up together throughout the list. Paul doesn't allow any form of what we might call political correctness to determine who gets placed where in this list. It's natural, I suppose, that Aquila and Priscilla are named first because they were so close to him. And they've had such a really close working relationship with the apostle in the past. But in many ways, they're just all muddled up together. No suggestion of a hierarchy in this list from the most important to the least important. That doesn't come across at all. Paul is showing us that this is how it should be in a church. I'm always greatly encouraged uh, when I stand at the front Sunday by Sunday and I look out across our own congregation here and, well, there are some faces that immediately let me know that there are several nationalities represented here. I think most Sundays there's probably up to about a dozen nationalities uh, across our congregation if you take England, Wales and Northern Ireland as separate nations, as some would insist that we do nowadays. If you do that, you can get up to a dozen. Several continents, all represented. What else would bring us lot together on a Sunday night like this, if not Christ? There are some, and as Paul thinks about them, they're a great encouragement to him. Uh, one in verse 5, who was the very first convert in a particular place. And, and Paul's heart just thrills at the thought, there's the first one. And, and the term first fruits suggests that there were many more. But oh, to think the first one that came to Christ there. There are some who've been Christian believers for more years than Paul has. That's Andronicus and Junior in, in verse 7. The way this reads, there are some who, like Aquila and Priscilla, are known personally to Paul. Perhaps they've never always lived in Rome and they've been elsewhere and Paul's met them. Some perhaps are known to him by reputation because their names have been reported to him on his various travels. So we have this diverse group of people who in many ways have nothing in common except this one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel has broken through every conceivable earthly, worldly boundary and brought them all together. And they worship the same God. They've been saved by the same Saviour. They love the same gospel. And Paul's heart just thrills at the thought of every single one of them. This is what a church looks like. That's what this list of names teaches us. And what are two key words and phrases as we make, we make our way through this list. Beloved. In the Lord or in Christ. Beloved 
in Christ. My beloved, verse 5, in Christ, verse 7, my beloved in the Lord, verse 8, my beloved, verse 9, in Christ, verse 10, in the Lord, verses 11 and 12, the beloved, Persis, verse 12, in the Lord, verse 13, the brethren, and that's a, that's a, a, a sense of family, Beloved in the Lord. That's what the church looks like. So let's think about that in our second point. United in Christ and beloved. And there is nothing else that could possibly bring together such a diverse group of people. Here is the unifying grace of God where there is no longer Jew or Gentile where there is no longer slave and free man, but all are one in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Galatians 3, 28. All baptised into one body and drinking of the one same spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is what the church looks like. In each one, a remarkable work of God's spirit has taken place. He has brought every single one of them from spiritual death to life eternal and imparted in each one of them such a new nature and heart and mind that they have seen themselves as they are in all of their sin. And in repentance, they have fled to Christ for forgiveness and for salvation. The gift of faith has been imparted to them. They have become a new creation in Christ Jesus who now indwells them by his spirit. And this remarkable union is formed between the believer and the Lord Jesus. It, it's hard sometimes to find the vocabulary to try and explain it and define it. You are brought to this newness of life which is found only in him. And he becomes your life and righteousness. The Christian is said to have the mind of Christ. Imagine that. Through the work of the word and God's spirit. This is worth pausing about over for a moment. Everyone is born into this world out of Christ, born in sin, children of wrath, Paul describes us all as in Ephesians. In that second chapter of Ephesians, Paul describes all people as without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from all of the covenants of promise that God has given. They have no hope because they are without God in the world. That's the condition in which all of us are born. That's the condition in which all of us would remain, unless God in his infinite mercy would cause us to be changed. And continuing in, in the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul says this, 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ Jesus, you've been brought near. You have been brought near. He doesn't say you brought yourself near. None of us could. No, you've been brought near because the work of salvation is all of God. You didn't do this for yourself. To be in Christ, you need to be born again. And to be born again is to be in Christ. Because becoming a Christian and continuing as a Christian is not something that you can do independently. The Lord Jesus Christ takes hold of you like a lost sheep and he carries you home on his shoulders and he places you rejoicing into his fold and now you belong to him and he belongs to you. You are in Christ. Or are you? Where are you this evening? Are you in? Or are you out? And all of this becomes our chief identity together as believers in Christ. I think one of the reasons that Paul is able to think so well of other Christians, and probably he does it in a way that puts most of us to shame, is because he never allows himself to look at another Christian without thinking about Christ. Hence the use of that phrase over and over again, either in Christ or in the Lord Whenever he thinks about that believer, he cannot help but think of Christ because that person is only who they are because of Christ. Might it be the case that there are certain Christians, perhaps even members of this church, and when you see them or when you hear their name mentioned, all kinds of very unhelpful and not so flattering thoughts and opinions about that person flood your mind. Might that be the case? I don't think that happens with Paul. And I think the reason is because whenever he thinks of that believer, he thinks of Christ. This person is in Christ, just like me, he thinks. Christ died for them just like he died for me. They've been bought with the price of Christ's blood and he's called them out of darkness and placed them into his marvelous light, just like me. Just like Paul, they once were not a people, but now they are a people. They're the people of God because of Christ. And for Paul, this means more than anything else in the world. 
as he views each one as beloved in Christ. He sees each one as God's handiwork in salvation and he rejoices in it. That's what this list of names teaches us. It's a precious perspective to have and it edifies. It brings the whole church together as one in Paul's eyes and as it should in yours and in mine as well. He's overflowing with affection for them. The, the greeting with a holy kiss at the end, well, that is that's simply a reference to the warmth and affection with which they would greet one another in the culture of their day. And of course, kissing on the cheek is still the most acceptable form of greeting in many parts of the world today. Such affection. Because it cannot think or look at any single one of them without thinking of Christ. That's what the church looks like. And then thirdly, this is a very simple message this evening. Thirdly, what does he see as he recalls all of these names? Faithful laborers. Faithful laborers. So let's return to that point that, interestingly, Paul makes no attempt to differentiate between these people in terms of how they serve in the church. Surely, many of them had all kinds of different functions, but Paul doesn't mention any of them. We do know something of Aquila and Priscilla, of course, because they're mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, as we, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But the main thrust here is that all of these individuals have labored hard and they've been faithful in whatever way it is that they have served. So it begins really uh, there where he talks um, about Mary in verse 6. That's the first mention of this laboring much. Of course, he goes on to mention it several other times. Laboured much. The same language is used again down in verse 12 of Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis. Uh, this word labour in the Greek, it, it means to labour to the point of exhaustion. Until you are weary. Andronicus and Junia, well, possibly their husband and wife, we're not certain, they're referred to as his fellow prisoners. Now that strongly suggests, doesn't it, that on one occasion when Paul was in prison, they were in prison with him. And presumably for the same reason why he's been thrown into a cell. And this couple are well known to the apostles. They're held in high esteem because of the way that they have endured much for the gospel. How did they end up in Rome? Well, we don't know. Perhaps as missionaries. 
perhaps as some who fled persecution. Were they from Rome originally? Were they in Jerusalem and converted as the Spirit came down upon the apostles at Pentecost and then returned to Rome? Intriguing possibilities. But they've labored and they've done so faithfully. And, and that's what matters to Paul. It says of Apelles in, in verse 10 that he's approved in Christ. What does that mean? Well, that almost certainly means that he's been tested and he's been found genuine. In the same way that you might test a precious metal to see if it's the real thing and to discover just how pure it is. This Apelles has been through some great struggle and testing of faith. We don't know what it is, but he's been found genuine. Christ has held him fast and he has held fast to Christ. Uh, these are believers who fit what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, there's that word again, beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here they are, written down in black and white. For many of these believers, being a Christian has cost them much. Some maybe are far away from their place of birth. Many have endured much hardship. Some will have been the target of severe hatred and opposition, even to being thrown into prison for their faith. Some are living lives where they enjoy precious few freedoms because they are slaves and here they all are in the church faithful laborers there's no place like it is there and the apostle loves the bones of every single one of them and let's think again about this point that Paul doesn't provide any particular detail as to how these individuals serve or what their role is in the church. Because that really isn't the issue for Paul. The issue is this. However you can serve, whatever your function is in the church, work hard at it and do it faithfully. That's what a church looks like. Don't get all hung up on what your role in the church is or isn't or cannot be or should be or could be. Paul doesn't list these people in order of importance according to the role they've played in the church. For Paul, it's got nothing to do with what their function has been. It's about how faithful they are. That's the issue. And it's about how hard they've been prepared to labour for Christ and for the gospel 
and for the church. Working to the point of, of the end of your endurance. Working to the point of exhaustion for the sake of Christ. Well, these are things to grasp hold of. These are things to be encouraged by. There's no special acclaim for certain ones who have certain roles in the church. What an encouragement that is. Faithfulness and committed hard work, whatever is yours to do, that's what Paul rejoices in as he remembers these loved ones. And he does so because that's the evidence of genuine faith working itself out in the life of a believer. It's what we reminded ourselves of from Ephesians chapter 4 the other week. The body edifying itself. The whole body joined, knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Here they are. Paul's rejoicing in them. That's what this list of names teaches us. Where has God placed you in the body? What gifts and graces has he given you? To serve the body. What challenging circumstance may God have placed you in? Perhaps at work. Perhaps at home. Perhaps by means of some physical condition. And there you must give it your all to faithfully endure. As we think upon these these faithful ones, these loved ones. Maybe each of us can truly seek to be a blessing to the other, as Paul considers these believers to be. As we share together what it truly means to be in the Lord and to love as he would have us love. What a thing it would be whenever we think of one another that we immediately think also of Christ. They belong to him. He's their saviour. They're beloved in the Lord. Uh, And we have no better conclusion for ourselves this evening, for this sermon, than to meet around the Lord's table. Because it's all about Him for those of us who are in Him. But if you're not, I would urge you to think much upon these things. And may God in his grace open up your heart even this evening that you too may be brought near. What a glorious thing if you came in through that door this evening out of Christ.
and went back home in him. What a triumph of God's grace that would be in your soul. How we would rejoice with you that you now are beloved in the Lord. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to be a church. May he help us and bless us.